Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. It's day 12 at the 57th New York Film Festival and day 12 of our daily podcast. In a little while, we'll have uh, the complete audio from last night's Q&A about the new New York Film Festival documentary, The Booksellers. Kent Jones led a conversation with filmmaker D.W. Young, producers Judith Mizrahi and Dan Wexler, as well as Strand bookstore owner Nancy Wyden. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I'm here with our guest, today's guest, Dan Stern, president of the board of Film and Lincoln Center. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. Thanks for joining us for this. Um, you were at the screening, and um, you're a book fan. We're going to get to that in a minute, but actually before we talk about books and before we talk about collecting uh, old books and the movie, um, let's just first talk about uh, the festival and, and your own relationship with the organization and with the festival. You're president of the board here. How long have you been coming to this festival? So I've been on the board for 19 years, and um, I've been coming to the festival probably for 25 years, approximately, uh, just after I moved to New York. I had a stint uh, as a second AD at Lucasfilm in Northern California, so I worked in the film business yeah. and um, had a, have a passion for it. So I moved to New York and took another career, but a friend introduced me, and I came to a screening and a Q&A, much like the one we heard last night, and I was hooked forever, so I got involved, and we went from there, and I, I uh, was on up on the board 19 years. I've been president for I think 13 years, and uh, kind of was very involved in building the new film center. And it's been, it's been a joy in my life for a long time. We're we're sitting inside the film center, the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center, as we as we sit and record this podcast. Um, what does a what does a president of the board of directors do? Help us help our audience who are listening understand sort of how the how an organization like this functions and and the kind of role that you that you play at an organization like this. Yeah. So first of all, just because it's easiest to talk about is money. So if you think about what we do, like th this year's festival, we have 153 films and talks, and we don't give out awards for those of us those people listening who haven't been to one of our screenings. We're really the only major film festival in the world that doesn't give out awards, and what that means, awards bring eyeballs people are interested in competition and we and we get that we all like you know various people here like sports and competition but um we our philosophy is to treat every filmmaker that's invited here equally it doesn't matter if you're marty scorsese or someone who is bringing their first film you, you get treated equally so it is harder to do that if you don't give out awards and we don't so i always say new york is the only place i think on the planet for now anyway where you could have, where the philanthropy is generous enough that would support something like this because you can't do it with corporate sponsorship. So the first thing the board does is just assure that we have the resources to do, make the kind of creative decisions that we make here, which is to try to be as unbiased as possible to bring things that move our, our, our audience and move the selection committee without regard to how popular it is or what award or how much news it's going to generate. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, the normal thing in running a, running a, a Nonprofit, uh, we have theaters to operate. We have various obligations to meet, and the board oversees all of those obligations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I know because I see you in every theater every night. I see you all around the festival um, that you're attending regularly. Um, maybe share with uh, our listeners some of the films that have been meaningful to you. What have been some of the memorable films or moments of this year's festival so far? Th for this you? year, yeah, yeah. So. 
you know, I, I have the great luxury, I think, of meeting some of the filmmakers directly sometimes when I'm backstage helping Eugene or others introduce people. So for me, a highlight has to be Pedro because I, you know, I, I love all of his work and I think he's come back to his best form in this film. So seeing that film was, I think, the, probably the highlight for me. Yeah. Um, there have been many highlights in this festival, I think, but that, that for me personally was the highlight. And, and to have, uh, have Pedro here in the same year that he also created this magnificent poster. Now, and and what, what people might want to know is we asked him if he would consider uh, making a poster, and he sent us five posters just to, just to understand how creative this man is. You know, he said, sure, I'll, 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 I'll do it. And, of course, he sent five. I think <laughs> we could use one each year. Exactly. I would say the second thing of little inside information is uh, we, we have a collection of Polaroid 20 by 24 photos here that we put together for 10 years. And I think um, Francis Coppola was th probably the biggest hole that we didn't have. And so I, I had a great time because I, I jumped backstage after his talk and I convinced him and his daughter to come around to our studio. And we had an incredible session shooting him and Sophia Coppola uh, together separately um, on the Polaroid. And we got in an incredible set of images. And that was, that was a personal highlight for me because he's, and during the shoot, he told stories for about an hour, which that was, you know, that was amazing. So that, that was that was my other personal highlight that didn't involve a film. For folks who uh, who are here at the festival and maybe uh, whether it's during the festival or, or year round walking around the film center, you can see some of those 20 by 24 Polaroid portraits that have been that have been shot either this year or over the many years hanging in uh, all around the film center. And it's really cool. Yeah, and you have to come back. We have um, hundreds of them for the last decade. There's some unusual, never, never before seen photos. We constantly rotate them. And um, we're going to put a little, we'll have a little more information about each photo starting um, in the next coming week. So you, you can keep coming back and see something new every time. Well, uh, let's switch gears and let's talk about this movie, The Booksellers, which was the fastest movie to sell out ticket wise at the festival uh, demand for this for this documentary this this premiere documentary was so high uh, we've added uh, an additional screening on the final weekend um, and we just couldn't print enough tickets that screening was literally every seat packed we brought in some extra chairs to accommodate everyone um, you were there and um, you collect books yourself. This was a topic that you were interested in. Um, tell me, tell me more about your own passion for books and also how the movie addressed that. Yeah, I think I would have been interested in this documentary just from what I'd heard from other people anyway, but I happen to be a collector of rare books. My, my personal story is that, um, I, I met, uh, a, a well-known rare book de dealer many years ago through a friend and, um, began kind of a lifelong effort collection effort and um and it continues today so i have my own story and i was fascinated to hear how the, the whole world of book collectors in new york thinks about it and it was fascinating it was a it was a fascinating it's a fascinating documentary but it's also a fascinating conversation um because and and also we're thinking about who was in the audience there were so many people not only folks in the movie itself but folks who were just passionate about this uh this subject, this topic, these these objects that that have such deep, and you see this in the movie, such deep uh, value and meaning to each an individual, each individual collector. There's so much more than just the title. It's the the physical object, the the way it's bound, the way it looks, the size, the shape. I mean, it, it's it's a fascinating 
culture within the kind of broader um the broader culture of the, the kind of arts like when we think about i was thinking about it in the terms of people who are like passionate about watching movies on 35 millimeter or even collect collecting old 35 millimeter prints um there's something just that's just really that makes that work uh even more tangible just the object itself yeah i i, I for me what was most fascinating and you can hear it in the q a and i think our q a is a great compliment to this film because we had nancy wyden who's grandfather started the founded the strand bookstore and her father ran it now she runs it and so she's on the front line of a very substantial business the only really the only book business still on book row down on lower park or fourth avenue i should say and so she she could address the question i thought that i found most fascinating which is is this going to die is this you know and you had booksellers you know our booksellers going to our books going to just cease to interest the next generation and i think that's easy to say I, I, I actually, they, the film addresses it, but they address it nicely in the Q&A, which I think is really, really interesting to listen to. And I tend to think that for, so for my personal experience, the book uh, dealer that I, that's gotten to know me has sold me more books that I never knew I'd be interested in than I have purchased books that I, I, I reach out and said, look, I like this author. Do you have anything? Well, that, that started that way. And I've, I probably, let's say I spent a hundred dollars on that. I've probably spent thousand dollars on other other things that i never knew i was interested in but he got to know me and knows my interests yeah so i think as as google and ai and ai comes um becomes more and more prevalent people are going to find that there's this treasure trove of physical assets from back from hundreds of years that addresses people's interests and if you all you have to do is connect them and they'll be interested yeah so i for one think that this generation is going to be interested but i think the film addresses it and you should really listen to the q a because it's interesting well, we're about to do that now, and uh, Dan mentioned Nancy Wyden, owner of Strand Bookstore. She was joined on the conversation or at the panel by uh, two producers of the film, Judith Mizraki and Dan Wexler, as well as the filmmaker D.W. Young and Kent Jones, our colleague, director of the festival, moderated this Q&A about the booksellers. So we're going to go to that now, and uh, Dan Stern, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, I, I think that people have an immediate reaction like, oh, how can you do a film about books? Um, that must be really hard. But then there's such beauty in the printed word, uh, which I'm sure that you probably found as you were making the film. Um, you know, it's just an opening remark, and maybe you could react to it. Yeah, you know, um, so Dan is also, along with being a producer, and he's, he's also directed a film, he's also a rare book dealer, a very accomplished rare book dealer. So, um, the film originated from an idea. It was really, really his idea in the very beginning, it, many years ago. Um, and one thing that he really advocated from the beginning, that we were, Judith and I were, of course, completely sold on as well, um, was just that there was a very rich visual potential for the film mm -hmm. because he's so familiar with the range of material. Yeah. Um, and he just, I think, saw that. Mm -hmm. um, and then. We came on board with that too. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if. You wanna... I mean, there there's so many documentaries about art and photography, for yeah. example, because yeah. it's it, it's so obviously cinematic. Mm -hmm. You can show it, people can see it, and if you look at book fairs now, they've changed in the sense they're not just rows of books, but this was mentioned in the film. They're they're on display, mm -hmm. and I don't I don't know if your displays have changed 
over the years. But um, it's a very visual world, the, yes. the books. Yeah. They have, haven't they, Nancy? Uh, yeah, the great Good. backdrops. You know, you yeah. put all the leather-bound uh, books with all the, you know, gem colors and all the gold um, yeah. ed edgings on them. I mean, they're just they're beautiful. Yeah, we have display cases with explanations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like if we were to um, have this at the Antiquarian Book Fair, like everybody here is now a book collector, and we'd, we'd all want to go out and buy things. Yeah, <laughs> Sandy is going to want to work on that. <laughs> But and and really, what the film becomes at a certain point is a portrait of different people's relationships to to books, to what they love. Um, and was that the way that you started, or did you just want to make a film that dealt with you know the world of booksellers? I think we talked more about kind of the collecting obsession originally, yes, and how yeah. fundamental that was to sort of the order of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting to see that, you know, a lot of dealers also um, share that. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, I, not all though. So there are definitely dealers who don't have the collecting obsession. Mm -hmm. um, but I think sometimes, you know, it's a way to kind of exercise it without building collection, but just you still get to sort of tap into it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I think that grew a little more as, as we progressed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think... From the very beginning, the, there was the idea that we would not highlight a single dealer, that this was going to be yes. a real cross-section um, in terms of generationally a little bit, but also mm -hmm. kinds of material being handled. Um, just to give, And this is by no means, this is definitely not an exhaustive, you know, uh, accounting of the trade. Uh, we could have easily put 30 more dealers. How could you do, do that? Right, no, you could, <laughs> yeah, obviously. So, yep. But um, I think that idea of, as, as that idea that it would always be a cross section mm -hmm. was there, but then as we talked to more and more people, that that kind of the degree of relationship I think became more mm -hmm. uh, a component of the film. And uh, just before we open up to the audience for questions, I just want to ask everyone to, you know, the, the the obviously, you get to this question at the end of the film, one side articulated by Glenn Horowitz. You know, I mean, it's like this is the end. This is it. You know, it's it's the apocalypse. It's over. Goodbye. And then for Fran Lebowitz, of all people, you know, who is just like to say, you know, every time I see people reading books on the subway, it's young people in their 20s. And that's a really the, the most hopeful thing you'll see on the subway, as Fran says. But, you know, um, um, I, you know, I, I, I would tend to be on Fran's side of that. Um, I think, um, and I'll ask these guys, but yeah. I think it's, it's kind of like everything's under this cloud of uncertainty a little bit. Sure. So I think the way that different people are manifesting all these different opinions yeah. um, is interesting because it, there's clearly no path yeah. forward that we're sure. sure. And I think there's an anxiety a little bit in the book trade about that. Yeah. Um, but I that's think, the only thing there's anxiety about right now. So. Yeah, right, yeah. that's the only Fortun thing. Fortunately for yeah, More anxiety than I yeah. need. Yeah, yeah no, it's, um, which is great. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, there's there are statistics that are, you know, give us room for optimism that millennials read are reading more I think than previous generations at the same age, but then I think you know that generation still didn't grow up entirely on screens yeah. and stuff. So then there's, I think, a reason for some pessimism about as we become more cyborgified, kind of mm -hmm. with our phones and technology, how that will impact our reading habits. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I don't know what you guys think about that's a sort of never-ending question. Well, I don't think it's hit the books the way it has, say, the music industry. I mean, the the alternative to a book just didn't catch on, I think, quite the way they were expecting. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they're 
obviously lots of Kindles around, but there's yeah. a tactile quality in a book <laughs> that you don't get from, you know, whatever it's called, just like a, moving your fingers to turn the page. Right, right. We're seeing a real enthusiasm with um, with young yeah. people coming, especially for the nostalgia. I mean, yeah. it, it kind of hits them. And, and look at the music industry. I mean, look at the enthusiasm for vinyl records that young yeah. people have. Yeah, that's So I, I think there's going to be a real insurgence of it. And, you know, people, um, you know, with these devices, they're feeling not connected with humans and, and mm -hmm. stories. And we're noticing, you know, the... The people uh, love reading more and more books. They're coming in for events. There's, there's still the shopping experience that, that they want. Yeah. I mean, the internet has changed collecting. Yeah. yeah. And there's also, yeah, there's this, there's research that shows that actually you feel more empathy when you read on print versus on the screen. Yeah. Um, you feel more connection. So that's just something to consider when we look at our future with everybody getting all their information reading on screen so much like what that means um yeah. it's you know yeah it's, it's interesting hmm. and there was a really i think very pertinent op-ed in the times just a few days ago about and i kind of wish it had come out when we were making the movie but um about how authoritarian regimes in china oh, Erdogan yeah. and turkey um are where they are now seeing printed books as being more threatening yes to their regimes than the internet because they've been able to essentially use the internet for propaganda and right. control to such a degree mm -hmm. that they are, they're more concerned about the ability of books yeah. to escape detection, to escape surveillance, and to convey information yeah. outside of the surveillance state, essentially. It's a totally yeah. private activity that you can do. Yeah, I also know that as a preservation, you know, in the world of film, uh, the, the the point that's brought up in the film about, you know, go back and try to open your files from seven years ago and good luck with that. And I mean, you know, the world is just, uh, the, you know, in film, the preservation medium is still film itself. So. I think it's very similar. Yeah. Um, questions? Where do you go to uh, uh, to get your books valued? I mean, how do, you know, if, if, if I have some rare copies of some really good books, who would be the first one to use to make me an offer? Do you have them on you? Well, you have two people down at the end who could definitely <laughs> talk to you about that. <laughs> I hesitate to name names here. I'll, as well as I'll hear it from, few people from some of the others. Um, but I mean, you have you have many resources. You know, in most of the bookshops you go into, you'll, you'll have someone who who can assist you. And and as a couple of the booksellers bemoaned in the film, there's now the internet where you have information right in front of you on the page, and you can, with that information, often get values. You know, from from digging around. So and you'll see that. It, there's a big range there. It's not not everyone with the same price, but it's also not everyone with the same copy of the book. Mm. So, I, I think though you have to be careful with the internet because sometimes yeah. people will just put um, prices sky high. They'll just think if that's the one copy there, I'll put it at ten thousand dollars and yeah. just see like who is that desperate for a book. It doesn't mean that you can come in and sell a book and really get that that price for it. It it doesn't mean that that's really the value of the book too. Yeah, because sometimes people will say, um, uh, this book is selling for $10,000. And I said, I have to correct them. I said, no, this book is being offered for $10,000. Yeah. It's been offered for $10,000 for the last 10 years. And it's <laughs> never, ever going to sell. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, lot of it, valuation has to do with condition. To, you know, like, like they talked about in the film, the dust jacket. You know, it has to be an important book, really, for it to be collected. And there has to be a demand for it. One thing I always wonder about with people who collect books, and I have books that I love, is are they 
actually ever reading the books because there's so much talk about the beauty and mm. the story. But do you find in people that you've interviewed for this film or in general, do people, unless it's a book that's falling apart, are people reading the books or just valuing it as an object? I'll pass that down because you guys know better. But um, I would say, I think generally no, but I think, <laughs> but I think the idea that you can, in my sort of my take on it, that if it's your, it's something you treasure, that you can go look at it and read passages or parts of it, is very compelling. Um, but I got into this. Uh, my father was a doctor, but was a book collector on the side, and. Uh, there was a piece done on him once where he he bragged about having read um, Hamlet from the first folio, um, and the, for him there was a, a kick to actually it wasn't his copy it was a copy that an institution had but they they allowed him in there and I guess they I guess he was in there for a while because it's a long play, a long play but um, yeah. it, you know it's there is there are many book collectors who do read the books they have and there are others that that never look at them but just to have the object. It means everything to them. Mm -hmm. and, and some, I think a lot of collectors, they, they love that author and they've already read the book and that's why they want the first edition. I mean, we also sell, you know, uh, libraries of people just with kind of gold bindings and, and I doubt they are able to have the time to read all of that. Wouldn't it be for collectors that just, <clears throat> excuse me, the knowledge of what is in that book or what could possibly be in that book of value. They have no clue what it is, but they do know that what lies between those pages is of great value, usually. And that's part of the joy and the thrill of collecting and obtaining that book as an object. Sure, I think so. I think um, also, kind of maybe related to that is, if it's a book that was owned or, you know, it's a manuscript or it's, you know, something that's in an archive where it was previously possessed by that person, like if it's the author's personal copy of something and you have that, you have a piece of that author's personal history and that can be, I think, a profound thing. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed in, with most of the dealers that nobody was wearing gloves um, and they just sort of handled these books with their bare skin and you don't see that at museums or anywhere else. So I just wanted to know if maybe you know why nobody wears gloves when they handle these books. I'll pass it to Dan because again, they know more. But <laughs> my, my friend Stephen Massey started laughing because he's been having this question asked for years and years. If you, if you go to an auction um, and you're previewing the sale, uh, you, you won't see the dealers or the um, uh, the specialists there using gloves in almost every case. And actually, the, the primary reason is that the tactile feel of turning the pages it's easier with the with the finger when you put gloves on. Um, but we we do get asked that a lot. Um, I think there's a casualness too because you just deal with rare books all day long that it doesn't seem um, maybe as I mean, I, I think you know the object is elevated, but you're you, you handle so many. Is that so? Seem true. Here. Yeah. Yeah. You, you answered it in the movie with your father pricing the books yeah. and Heather. Mm -hmm. 
Heather mentioned it too. In, so, in she'll be here party. Sunday. But what is terrifying that I experienced um, was, uh, I think it was Terry Osborne at Reason Company showed me at the book fair um, a, a map, a very old map, worth I think 300 something thousand dollars. And she, you know, she opened it up to show us, and this is a very fragile old map. Worth and you know, if, if it rips in half, there goes the $300,000 basically. And I mean, I felt like if I sneezed, Boom. And so when Fran's joking about, you know, I have to, it's like a, a Henry Short story, like I definitely shared the sentiment in that moment. And everybody actually is rock, walking around with red wine at this book fair, which is crazy. You just can't believe that it's allowed. But did, did you uh, notice how, says, many, how many people had cats there? <laughs> well, there's a, book people love cats. There were no dogs in your film. Yeah. Well, there's a thank you to the cats at the end of the, at the end, of the end credits, right? I think not all the cats made the cut, unfortunately. But. <laughs> um, Sadly, we have to clear out for the next uh, for the next show. But this has been great. What a movie! Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank everyone, you everyone, for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.